Welcome to the Now There's a Thought podcast. Today, a podcast host, a pastor and a geneticist walk into a bar and ask, does Dawkins make people atheist? As usual, it's not actually a bar. Once again, our friends at the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion are providing us with recording space and guests too, so many thanks to them. Welcome to the Now There's a Thought pop-up bar. I'm afraid you'll have to buy your own drink. Hello again and welcome to the bar. Once again, the pop-up bar at the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion. So thank you to those guys for having us. We are joined, or I am joined once again by Andy Wadhams, pastor of Gallery Church in Birmingham. Bonjour, one and all. Bonjour. Bonjour. Lovely to have you. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't go too far down that road because it's going to be a bit rude if we start speaking too much French. The listeners it's won't true. Understand. I mean, I could, for, for, for hours and hours I'd go on in French, but I better not. Yeah, no. Better no, not. I wouldn't advise Just it. the same three or four words, but hours and hours I could do it for. Yeah. Hello. Good to be with you. <laughs> it's great to have you. And we are joined today by Dr. Dennis Alexander. Welcome. I'm Welcome on. To Hello. Be with you too. We're going to do a studio clap. Woo! Thank you very much. <laughs> and we've kind of come full circle here because you were our speaker at our very first ever thought event yes. before it was Now There's a Thought and back when it was an event and not a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I remember those days uh, vaguely because it was pre pandemic. So <laughs> yeah. Anything pre pandemic is lost in the midst of time. But no, the haze. Had, we had a good time. I remember that. Yeah. It was great. Um, we're grateful for you helping us get off the ground as well. Yeah, that's true. Um, but we've evolved a bit since then, uh, and we're delighted to have you back in this new format. Um, and we do need to introduce you to the listener because we're assuming that they weren't there. We've got listeners in the States and Guam. I know, a growing community. It's amazing. Guam? I'm imagining they weren't in Birmingham at our little event for our very first time. So we need to introduce Dennis properly. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, for the Guam listeners at the very least. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it would yeah. be a long way to travel, but you know, thank you for tuning in from the distance. It's amazing. Please message us as well. Yeah, we want to. So cool to get some know. conversations with them. So, Dennis, I have your profile that I well, an edited profile because it was too long <laughs> that I lift, lifted from the Faraday Institute website. So I'll read that out, okay. um, and then if you can help us decode some of what that means, because mm. there's a lot of academic speak in here. Yeah, and, and I just, don't understand it. That's if you just look at my simple face, that'll help you understand the level <laughs> that you're talking to here. <laughs> like, Let me just explain this for Andy. <laughs> so, Dennis Alexander is the Emeritus Director of the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion, where we now sit. So, thanks for doing a great job of that. Emeritus Fellow of St. Edmund's College, Cambridge. Dr. Alexander was previously Chairman of the Molecular Immunology Programme and Head of the Laboratory of Lymphocyte Signaling and Development at the is it the Babraham Institute or the Babraham Institute? Abraham. The Abraham. Babraham Institute. Like Abraham, but the B. But he's a babe. Uh, <laughs> prior to that, he was at the Imperial Cancer Research Laboratories in London, which is now Cancer Research UK, and spent 15 years developing university departments and laboratories overseas, latterly as Associate Professor of Biochemistry in the Medical Faculty of the American University of Beirut in Lebanon. There, he helped to establish the National Unit of human genetics. He was initially an open scholar at Oxford reading biochemistry before obtaining a PhD in neurochemistry at the Institute of Psychiatry in London. Okay, let's go back through that again. <laughs> wow. You, well done you. Thanks. And sorry, Dennis, well done you as well. Yeah. Sounds like yeah. you've been busy. Thank you. Yeah, a bit busy, but yeah, I'm old. So emeritus director, yeah. what does that mean? Yeah. Emeritus director simply means I'm retired. I was director once, but no longer. So and emeritus is academic speak for retired basically, and honoured. And sort of, you, you've done that and you're not doing it anymore, basically, bottom line. yeah. Exactly. Still allow, are you still allowed, I mean, is there a level of honour? Are you still allowed in the building? You use a Coke I'm, machine, I'm that still kind of allowed thing. in the building. That's Well, I'm chair of the trustees, so that means you? I am still allowed. Involved. Yeah, yes, yeah. I'm okay. still a bit involved with that. So, yeah. But, you know, when you retire, my definition of retirement is when you don't get paid anymore for doing anything. <laughs> Bottom line. Fair. Okay. And I'm not being paid for doing this, by the way, just so your listeners know. No. Okay. Just to clarify that point. <laughs> Graciously so, yeah. giving yeah. up your time Very to join good. us. Yes. Uh, so, Emeritus Director of the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion, we're not assuming that our listeners know what that is. No. <laughs> well, no, there's no reason why they should do particularly. We started, we being myself and my colleague of mine called Bob White, we were both fellows of St. Evans College here in Cambridge. Cambridge has 31 colleges, which make up the university together. The university is like a big sort of octopus with many arms, and the colleges are the arms, if you picture it in that way. So St. Evans College is a graduate college, uh, just down the road where we're having this conversation. And that's where we started up the Faraday Institute, uh, Bob White and myself, back in 2006. And we just felt there was a need to have 
uh, a space to create a space where people could come and discuss science and religion mm. in an academic way. It was a time, well, you might remember Richard Dawkins' God Delusion was published in 2006, although that had no connection at all with our particular founding of the Faraday Institute. We didn't know that was going to happen mm. when we got it going, when we started it up in 2005. But we just felt, you know, there's so much sort of conflict oppositional type of discussion between science and religion. We got a bit bored with it, frankly. Yeah. And we thought it might be useful and helpful to people just to create an academic space within Cambridge University where we could discuss science and religion, have courses, lectures, seminars, all that kind of thing. So mm. that's why we did it, really. Fantastic. Oh, the antidote, yeah. but within the academic space. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay, we're working backwards through your career now, aren't we? So you were previously chairman of the Molecular Immunology Programme. Can you explain to us what We've Molecular Immunology that. is? Well, We've we all done that. So immunology now, of course, after the pandemic, suddenly everybody knows what immunology is. Yeah. is what you, what's happened when you get your jabs. You get your jabs and your immune system, your defence system against nasty things like COVID-19 goes into full swing and protects you against those nasty coronaviruses. So the immune system is immunology is all about the study of that particular system. And molecular immunology simply means looking at the molecules involved in that system. Right. So, so we're a step down from the cells. Down from the, the cells, down the molecules. And my favorite cell was T cells. And the T cells are what do a great help to us to defend us against viruses and other nasty pathogens like those. And so uh, molecules are the signaling pathways that happen inside the T cells to make them divide, to replicate, or to stop replicating, uh, and what goes wrong in cancer when they replicate out of control and so on. So that's what it's about. Wow. Amazing. I remember learning about T cells as a kid from How My Body Works. Did you ever see How My Body Works? This series of cartoons. <laughs> it's amazing. The T cells are in these little like um, spaceships and they fly around, oh, um, nice. gassing the viruses. Uh, it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a wonderful defense system. I mean, actually thinking about it in terms of um, a great big invasion. And a great big defense is not a bad way of thinking about it, actually. Mm. We're being invaded, even as we sit here, we're being invaded by all kinds of bugs swirling around in the in the air around us and all mm. the kinds of things. Fortunately, we don't see them, so we don't think about them most of the time, I hope. Uh, but, <laughs> Except for during know, pandemics. Yeah, well, in the pandemic we do, but but they're <laughs> yeah. still there, whatever, you know. And, yeah. uh, and, and the, the immune system is amazing, really, at how much it defends us against. It's so, mm. most of the time, most of the time, so efficient. I'm just amazed by it. Fantastic. Okay. Well, I think we're going to continue on this route because we also oh need to know uh, what lymphocyte signaling and development is. Yeah. So lymphocytes are the general term which cover, which talk about many of the cells that are involved in the immune defense, such as T cells and B cells and monocytes and, and all these sort of cells that uh, are involved. It's a general generic term to cover a whole bunch of cells. And then you narrow down and get one particular subset. What do they do? B cells make antibodies. Okay, we know that, so forth. So B cells are lymphocytes. Mm -hmm. So signaling all those pathways I just mentioned inside those cells that help them to respond to, uh, to get activated when they meet a foreign body, when they meet something foreign and they want to get activated, they want to divide. That's when your lymph nodes swell up. So you yeah. always know when you're getting an immune response when you feel your lymphocytes suddenly go, whoo, and in my neck, they've gone big. Why is that? Okay. Yeah. okay. So, so they're recruiting lots and lots of different lymphocytes into the lymph nodes to mount an immune response to get cracking. So that's okay. why your fussy auntie's yeah. always like, oh, are, you, are your glands swollen in right. your neck? Right, yeah. they'll always feel the neck or feel yeah. down here or yeah. whatever. Yeah, the first thing. Yeah, so development then, of course, is how those cells develop. And the T cells are educated in the thymus tiny little thing right in here. Um, and so, so like it's the not bottom much of your neck, the base of your neck. Base is down there, yes, sort of the top of your chest. Stick uh, and think about a little organ in there, which is um, the educational, uh, where all the T cells get educated in order that they will become mature and ready for action, and especially so they won't attack our own bodies. That's very important. I'm being a very good advert, advert for how my body works because I did. I remember them doing this in, in an actual <laughs> little school. They had all of the uh, little little people in the spaceships in a school. Is it, were these videos? Or y yeah, 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 yeah. Have they made it to YouTube yet? Yeah, they have. They're fantastic. You need to stick this in the show notes. I will. I mean, as well as all the other great works <laughs> Dr. Dennis has done. Well, yeah, the T cells are educated. I'm feeling educated. Mm. Um, and you started out as an open scholar at Oxford. What does that mean? 
Oh, it just simply means you get a scholarship which funds part of your time at Oxford, basically. Yeah, nice. so that's very competitive. And so I was happy to get one of those because, yeah, my yeah. I had three sibs and so my poor old parents were trying to fund our education. So getting a scholarship, it all helps, you know. Yes. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And then PhD in neurochemistry. Yeah, so neurochemistry um, is the chemistry of the brain. Mm. And the Institute of Psychiatry was, at that time, one of the main places, or not the only place, but it, there were very few places. I'm talking about ooh, back in the 1960s. There were not many places in this country that were looking at the chemistry of the brain in mm. research terms. And the Institute of Psychiatry was one of those places. And in Oxford at that time, uh, there wasn't much going on in the way of neurochemistry, actually. So I went to Institute of Psychiatry and looked at ox brains, if you really want to know. Ox and brains. so I used to ox go ox brains. So, um, and because we couldn't really work on human brains, as you may well accept when you're doing <laughs> yeah. the neurochemistry of the brain, especially in those days. So I used to go off down to uh, Slaughterhouse, um, <laughs> which is a Jewish slaughterhouse. And the reason is because I don't know if your listeners might want to just cover their ears at this moment, but mm, sensitive it means content. That they don't destroy the brain, you see, when you get the brain out of a. Um, out of an ox in a, a Jewish slaughterhouse because you you cut the throat basically of the ox. Yeah. So and in those days they were throwing the brains away. Can you believe it? You know that that, would, that, that. would be not typical for Perfectly Europe. Perfectly good brains in being Europe, thrown away in France yeah. or yeah. Italy or Spain. You, you'd eat them, but not in this yeah. country. You see, oh. no, no. We're very picky with our meat. So mates. I used to just tip the guy. Um, you know, ten bob. I suppose 50p, and uh, he would cut it out for me. And then I'd pop it into um, dry cold, that is solid carbon dioxide, take it really cold, freeze it immediately, yep. put it on the back of my Honda 49cc motorbike, <laughs> yes. and go off and back to the lab, okay? And I was always worried, you know, that there might be an accident on the way. And <laughs> Brains all over the road. Frozen yeah. brains all over the road. And fortunately, it never happened. But that was always my big worry, actually, along the way. Report, anyway, reports so. on the news. So, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a all good one. fun. And we had to look at the chemistry of the ox brain. Yes. So. Amazing. Can I ask about So the progress in neuroscience from then to now, just astonishing or the fundamentals the same or that whole – what you studied to – what people might study now uh, is it just different completely different or well i think the technology has improved so much mm. so now of course we can do brain imaging which we didn't have in those right. days yes you know so you can pop people into an mri machine and you can scan their brains and you can yeah. get a pretty good idea at least of which parts of the brain are being most active when they're yeah. thinking about wonderful thoughts about something and all that kind of thing so i think the the brain imaging technology has changed the field a lot Right. Um, but there's still a lot of neurochemistry to do, and it's still done. Uh, and, of course, there have been huge advances mm. you know, since that time. But having said that, sometimes I look at the literature now, and I go, wow, that doesn't look so different from what we were doing and thinking about back, right. in, the, you know, back yeah. in the 1960s. There's still, it's such a complex organ, mm. um, and it's, there's so many synaptic connections you know, between the brain cells that really um, trying to get to the heart of what it's doing can be really, really difficult, actually. It's a challenging organ still to this present day to work on compared wow. to the liver or the kidney or the thymus or something. It's just so much more complex. It's amazing. Yeah. And what about the jump from neurochemistry to then genetics and immunology? What was, was that quite an easy transition or was it like a big jump? Well, I had... A call from God to go and serve him overseas, both in science and in faith, and so landed up in Turkey. And so, uh, and my first academic job I ever got actually was in Ankara, in the capital city of Turkey. Mm. And so, the only thing I knew about was neurochemistry. So, I set up a lab in neurochemistry then. So, I stayed in neurochemistry for all the time I was in Turkey. Um, and then we were, had to uh, move on um, in the late 1970s. It, it got close to being civil war in Turkey, actually, at that time, in the late 1970s. Wow. And we were wondering what to do next. And then I had a phone call out of the blue to go and would I come and work in the American University Hospital in Beirut? Because this gentleman called Vazken Derkalustian, who was had just gone back from the States, back to his home country of the Lebanon, wanted to set up a new national unit of human genetics. And would I come and help him? And so he somehow got hold of my CV. And so I said, well, it's not really my field. Um, 
My field is neurochemistry. Oh, he said, never mind. Don't worry about it. We'll send you to Guy's Hospital for a couple of months so you can learn everything and then come out. <laughs> I said, oh, months, that'll be fine. Okay, well, that'd be interesting. And so that's what I did. And so I went Incredible. out there in 1981 and helped set up the bio well, I set up the biochemical genetics lab, which is the laboratory which looks at human genetics from a biochemical perspective, that mm. is to say the chemistry part of genetics more. Right. And so that fitted with my background in biochemistry. And so it really um, was helpful for them in setting up this unit, which was there in the American University Hospital in the Department of Pediatrics in the children's department because mm. a lot of kids get nasty diseases. Mm. One of the problems in Lebanon is they, in those days, probably still do actually, many of them marry their first cousins. Right. Which is not a good idea if you want to avoid genetics. I see why genetic genetics diseases. would be an issue then. Yeah, mm. uh, the genetics is a big issue, really. And so that's why the National Unit of Human Genetics was set up. And really, its main aim was to help people who, mostly people who married their first cousin. I had children with genetic diseases as a consequence. Yeah. yeah. Quite a story. This is fun. Well, this is fun for us. Yeah. Sorry if you're going over old ground. But, um, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, really interesting. Yeah, well, there's far off days. I feel but, like there's a uh, film in yeah. this. Yeah. yeah, and even you know, a decision made at the end of your time in, in Turkey, you know, just really interesting. Well, it happened out of the blue, actually. I mean, I felt a call from God to help in development work overseas. So, and, mm. and therefore, after Turkey, we were trying to think of where to go next and pray about, you know, where to go next yeah. after that. Yeah, okay, so, so, it was, yeah. so you were still in that mode of We were in that mode called. when the kids were still yeah. young and small and could travel and they wouldn't know where they were as long as mum and dad were there. Yeah. It was probably going to be fine. That's amazing. And then there's another jump then later on from, well, at some point you come back to the UK. I'm sure there's a story there as well. And then also this jump into the science and faith conversation rather than purely I'm doing some science and I'm a Christian and I'm in the same space. Sure, yeah. So we, we left Beirut in a hurry, as many people did in those days. Mm. Um, we, we had three evacuations out of Beirut. And the first two we went back, you know. Um, but the third one was in 1986 when President Reagan, who was US president at that time, did a deal with Maggie Thatcher and so that the planes, the American planes, took off from um, Lake and Heath, actually not too far from Cambridge, and they went off to try and bomb, they did bomb Libya, and they tried to kill Colonel Gaddafi, and mm. and then they missed Colonel Gaddafi, and they killed his little adopted child, and the whole Arab world was in uproar. Mm. And, you know, they were sort of threatening and killing off some British people in Beirut, and British Embassy organised an evacuation, and so we took part in that, and that's how we came back to England. Mm. In Dramatic. A a hurry. There definitely is a film in here somewhere. So it's we had to leave in a hurry. So <laughs> oh, yeah. actually, we had to leave the experiments on the bench. We we were out in forty eight hours. Okay, so I uh, had yeah. to leave the experiments on the bench right in the middle of them of the experiments. So yeah, so that's so I ended up in England um, without a job and without a home and with a family who needed feeding and <laughs> wondering what to do next. So mm. yeah, and that's how I ended up really in immunology because a job opened up a one year, a one year job at the Imperial Cancer Research Fund, which is now called Cancer Research UK. Mm. Um, at that time, they had their main labs in Lincoln's Inn Fields in the middle of London, a building torn down recently a couple of years ago. It's now part of the London School of Economics. Uh, and so, fresh in my mind, I was there just a week ago. Anyway, um, yeah, so that's how I came into immunology, basically. I had to relearn another research field simply because I needed a job. That's why I got a job, <laughs> so that's what happened. Wow. But again, it's all biochemistry. It's all chemistry of T cells, chemistry of B yeah. cells, chemistry of the brain, chemistry of genetics, whatever. Yeah, that's so it's similar in that way. Yeah, so. Well, ladies and gentlemen. Dennis Alexander. Wow. Absolutely. <laughs> so let's have yeah. some fun as well with your back catalogue of books. Cool, blimey. So I have here... Sorry, mine or Dennis's? <laughs> Dennis, oh, okay. do you, have you written a book? Sorry? Do I, what? Do I, have I missed something? <laughs> no, I have not written a book, no. I look forward to it, no. though. <laughs> um, but yes, I have here a list of 10 publications. Right. I'd like you to tell me which ones sound like they might have been written by Dennis after okay. we've had a fantastic rundown of his career. Right, I'm going to look in his eyes as you see how he responds in poker terms. Poker <laughs> I'll look away. I'll look away now. See if he's got any tells. Right, here All we right. go then. Creation or evolution, do we have to choose? That's, that definitely yes. Yes, well done. Yeah, it's got to be. 
biological validation of the CD45 tyrosine phosphatase as a pharmaceutical target. <laughs> you know, I remember reading that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Is there purpose in biology? No. Oh, no, it was. That was Dennis as well. Oh, okay. Uh, L'âge d'Adam, deux modèles pour le dialogue entre la genèse et la science. No. No, that one's Dennis as well. That's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> did you write it in French or did you have it translated? No, it was translated. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> that I had fun when I saw that one come up on the list. Um, order and emergence in biological evolution. I think I'm picking up a thing here. Are you? Yeah. I'm going to go with yes. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that was Dennis, right, yeah. Are we slaves to our genes? Yes. Cool, yeah. Uh, fusion tyrosine kinase mediated signaling pathways and the transformation of hematopoietic cells. Well, I mean, a bit of a chat with someone who was picking the titles, but yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that one was written specifically as a tongue twister, I think. <laughs> yeah. um, the spirit of God in evolutionary history. Oh, that sounds good. That yes. Sounds very I interesting. Mean, I mean, yes. Healing enhancements in the human future. Hmm. Yes. And the last one, God in the Lab. God in the Lab. Now, that's good. The title's, yeah, the title's got catchy there for people like me. God in the Lab. Yeah. That one's Ruth. Oh, no. <laughs> I just disrespected the titles as well. Oh, gosh. It's a complete car crash. But there yeah. you go. I've been busy. And is that, is, that, is that all of them? Is there more? How many books oh. do you think you've written? Oh, I don't know. I, 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 I'm not sure. I've not counted <laughs> so things. No, I've not counted but, them either. Uh, yeah. I just kind of went, that's, that's a long list. <laughs> a lot depends, actually. In, in the scientific community, the only things that count in the scientific community in terms of your career and what happens next are peer-reviewed publications, basically, mm. yeah. bottom line. Books, yeah, if you're in books, doesn't really matter. Which comes to, well, Richard Dawkins, bless him, you know, he's written these wonderful books, which mm. I enjoy greatly reading, but most of them. Uh, but on the other hand, that really does not count in a scientific career, funnily enough. You yeah. Know, it, it's peer-reviewed publications is what counts. Mm. Yeah. Sure. Which there were a couple of in there as well, the ones with the long, complicated words. Yes. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. They're all important, but mm. some are important in different ways. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. All right. We've learned a lot about your career and... Uh, globe trotting uh, but we do have a tradition here of using some of my carefully calibrated quickfire questions mm. which are non-scientifically designed to get to the core of who each guest is as a person so are you ready for my quickfire questions I'm absolutely ready as ready as i can be fantastic go. what's your name and where'd you come from what the what what's your name and where do you quick. come from it was too quick <laughs> <laughs> what? start again what's your name and where do you come from Dennis Alexander, and I come from Cambridge at the moment, London by roots. Fabulous. Uh, what's your favourite type of cheese? Oh, yeah. Ooh, that's a very difficult question. I'd have to think hard, but I think mm. probably Gruyere, actually. Yeah. Ooh. So, yeah. Okay. Mm. How do you say orange juice in Turkish? Portakalsu. <laughs> Not everyone can answer that. I, Not everyone can answer that. I had an inkling. Um, would you rather work in a room that smelt of raw fish or petrol? Raw fish. Oh, interesting answer. Okay. Is it more annoying when people misspell Dennis or just call you Alexander instead? Oh, I think call me Alexander instead. I mean, I'm so used <laughs> to misspelling of Dennis, so I just, it doesn't matter. I hardly notice. Yeah. <laughs> and final question. What is your favourite place to be? Oh, that's nice. I would say favourite place to be is in southern Turkey on a sunny day, sitting around the pool with a book and just at peace. Oh, that sounds lovely. Sounds all right, that. That sounds all right. Nice question. All right. So, a second, obviously, to being in a, in a small library here doing a podcast. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Favourite place to be, of course. <laughs> of course. Wherever you currently yes, are. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like we know you now. Um, yeah, it's been great. Actually. We haven't quite finished discussing your career either. Um so, after all of this CV, it would be very reasonable to happily retire, but you have mm. decided that you are going to compile a new book, along Ooh, with exactly. Alistair McGrath, called Coming to Faith Through Dawkins. So that's the book that we came here to talk about today. Whoa, that title? Mm-hmm. Oh, that sounds like that wasn't in the plan there. Well, I'm sure Dennis will tell us more about that in a second. Okay, no, I'm excited about it. But that. every guest, before we get to the main point of the podcast, mm. must first complete a silly game. 
Mm, yes. It's time for a game. Today we're playing Is It Science? So you'll each be given three items and you'll have 30 seconds to argue why it is science in Dennis's case or why it's not science in Andy's case. For every, all three, I'm not For all science. three, you are not science. Brilliant. And which, we, you know, in Dennis's company, I'll allow this time, you know. Okay. Cool. What happens if I don't think it sounds? Uh, then you've got to find a creative way to argue. Oh, you want me to argue? Yeah. When I don't, okay, right, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I will award a point to the most convincing participant yeah. on each item. Yeah. And we just need to let you know as well yes. that Dennis is feeling competitive and he's already <laughs> taken his watch off in order to count his 30 seconds. This is pro level. He's going to put together a 37, 37, 30 second <laughs> speech of perfection. It's going to be amazing. We haven't heard the subjects yet though, so that could scupper everything. That could scupper everything. Well, as per tradition, yeah, so, we'll start with Andy. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Your 30 seconds will be up when you hear my yeah. very attractive uh, hand whittled whistle. Okay. And your item... I want to know why this is not science. Not science. The item is Snow Fairy Moisturiser from Lush. Go. <laughs> Sorry. Just give me a moment to process what on earth that is. It's not science. Okay. <laughs> Snow Fairy Moisturiser from, from Lush. Lush. Is that right? The shop, the smelly shop. The smelly shop. Okay. That is not science. <laughs> I'll tell you why it's not science. Because it's an invasion of human well-being. You walk past that shop and it smells of Snow Fairy hand moisturiser and its friends and all of its other kind of strong smelling stuff you walk past just doing your own day and okay I've run out of time <laughs> it's not science because it's not for humanity because it affects you it takes down people in the mall I like that you're implying that science is for, is for things that are for humanity well I don't know yeah I was, I was assuming a good moral <laughs> <laughs> alright Dennis we want to know why Snow Fairy Moisturiser from Lush is science starting now well, I, you know, I just happen to know that that particular moisturiser has been through really years and years of testing. I mean, they spent so much time in uh, looking at about, you know, 103 different moisturisers. Incredible. And then the amazing thing was that this particular moisturiser was the one that really did the best job. You know, they... they Tested on thousands of people, and they came to their conclusion scientifically after all the evidence that this really was the one to sell, and that's what they do. <laughs> yes. Beautifully timed. Close, close that one, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> this may or may not contain uh, made-up statistics. Uh, but 100% I think, of the time. <laughs> I think we have to award that one to Dennis. Yeah, I suppose so. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dennis, we'll start with you for the next one. Right. Your item, I want to know why a quill pen is science starting now. Well, quill pens have been tested for many centuries, actually. That's the interesting thing. And, you know, in some scientific theories, you really have to test different items over a long period of time with many different cultures and many different people just to see if they work well. And it so happens that quill pens come into that category, that they have been well tested Although occasionally a royalty have a problem, you know, with pens and they tend to spill them, I'm afraid. So you can make a mistake even after all that scientific testing. But clearly, your pens are scientific. You blew the whistle at 28 seconds. I had two seconds left. Oh. That <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Oh, I'm sorry. Very Robbed you good. of two seconds. Okay, Andy, yes. why is a quill pen not science go uh, well simply a quill pen is not science i'll take you back to a few years ago when i'd got my btech national diploma in graphic design and i was scaling the academic heights and i started to look where to go next and i looked at a course on graphic design i could find one and i started thinking what about science i had a look at these different science but for the life of me i could not find anywhere in higher education a course for the quill pen, the study of, the exploration of, an institute of the quill pen. So it's not science. <laughs> I'm really not sure of the logic of that argument, but I love a bit of storytelling, so I'm giving that one to Andy. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right, uh, we're back to you to start again, Andy. Oh, this time yeah. I want to know why. A further object is not science. The object is my saxophone. Go. Mm. Yeah, your saxophone is not science. Part of it could be attributed or studied in science, but typically it is 
creative and music. It's part of the human soul. It's part of the human expression. So whilst there can be some overlap, I would primarily say this fits well and truly in the arts. No, that's, that's your ending. Finn. <laughs> forfeited five seconds there, but that's absolutely fine. Well, well, Dennis will tell you exactly what I forfeited. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, 5.67 seconds. Um, all right, Dennis, why is my saxophone science starting now? Well, funnily enough, I went to a jazz concert just last uh, Monday and the guy who was playing the saxophone had three saxophones and you could tell he was sort of testing them out you know, <laughs> during that process of playing the, the jazz concert. And I was looking at that and thought, that is so scientific. You know, I didn't realise that jazz was as scientific as that because he was testing one in one uh, particular performance and then the next, you know, five minutes later he tested another one and then at the end we all clapped louder. Um, what particular saxophone? And that just illustrated to me the way in which a saxophone is scientific. <laughs> Beautiful. Tell me he filled out a table of results as well. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to say it is a journey finding the correct read every time, so I'm definitely giving that one to Dennis. Oh, come on! <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Good. Congratulations to Dennis yes. on that 2-1 win. Yes, it's the least we can do for you being here today. <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. Yeah, you take that away, it. you say, oh, go home and tell everybody what happened. Oh, I won this incredible game, you know. I know, yes, well, I shall mention that. Yeah, so, yeah. All right, shall we get to this book that we've been teasing? Yeah. So I've still got my 30-second timer open. No. I have. Um, Dennis, can you give us a quick rundown of what the book's purpose is and, mm. and what it is in 30 seconds? Yes, the book's a collection of 12 essays by 12 different authors who come from five different countries around the world, from Australia, South Africa, Egypt, United States, and this country. And it's just a story in each case about how they move from atheism or agnosticism to faith in Christ through the writings of Richard Dawkins or through his ideas and sometimes mm. Christopher Hitchens. So that's what the book is about. Wow. Didn't even need the full 30 seconds. That's, That's a pro incredible. Job. Yeah, what an incredible subject. That's um, so. I hang out with a lot of people who have who don't have faith or agnostic or, or you know, considered their own viewpoints. And uh, they're athe atheists. Um, <clears throat> one of four types. I've been informed in all sorts of stuff. But often Dawkins' work and especially Hitchens' work is cited as reasons to, you know, have a have a view a worldview of uh, uh, that is atheistic. So you're saying almost the opposite here. In This is a collection of writings that people have found faith through those writings or found holes in their writings or different journeys. Yeah, it was a bit of a surprise, actually, to begin... I mean, this is years ago, maybe five or six years ago. I started to bump into people who would just tell me their faith journey. I bumped into Christians. Mm. And I never expected this to be happening. And they said, oh, well, it was really Richard Dawkins that set me off on my pilgrimage to faith in Christ. And I go, really? Oh, yeah. that sounds interesting. Yeah. And then I chatted with Alistair McGrath one day, again, years ago, uh, who's now a co-editor on this particular book. Mm. And he, he said, oh, well, I've, I've found a few people as well like that. And we go, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it is. And then we thought, you know, after finding a few of these people, we thought, why don't we give them a chance to tell their stories? You know, it was mm. it just sort of happened quite informally, really, in that way. You know, we didn't start out with a great campaign looking for people. And then one thing led to another, and we just contacted various people. And he said, oh, do you have any other friends like that? And he said, sure, we know people like that. And so we collected 12. We could have collected 24, actually, but wow. 12 is about community. all you need for a book. So I think it's the tip of an iceberg, and it'll be interesting to find out more mm. when the book comes out, I think. That's incredible. I think we should um, probably... Pause and say, I think Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens are famous names, mm -hmm. but I don't know if people always know what the arguments are that are attached to those names. Uh, yeah, good thought, yeah. Um, so can we perhaps have a rundown of Richard Dawkins' theories in a minute? Do we reckon we can do that? <laughs> sure, <laughs> yes, a, mi well, a whole minute, that's a long time. A whole time. minute, yeah, I'm being Ooh, generous this much, yes. <laughs> I mean, basically, Richard Dawkins is a zoologist from Oxford who... Uh, then quite early on in his career set out writing really good books, actually. And some people, I can still remember reading The Selfish Gene. I read it around the, the pool at the American University of Beirut, actually, has a, its own pool down by the Mediterranean. Mm, so I remember nice. reading, of course, you did get shelled and, and sort of sniped out occasionally there. So that was a disadvantage. <laughs> yeah, but the okay. advantage was on a quiet day, he could read anyway. But, you know, he's, he's a good writer and, and a popular writer, 
And I, I still recommend his books on evolutionary biology as a way of explaining that to people, especially The Ancestor's Tale. I think to me that's uh, his best book. It's not his best known book, but it's the one I've liked best. But unfortunately, especially as he went on in life, and for slightly puzzling reasons, he, he got it under his bonnet to attack religion. And especially after 9-11, and especially mm. uh, when that happened, then he started seeing religion as the root of all evil, and we should now attack it. And so that... You we'll let you carry on. We'll let him carry on. <laughs> well, you know, that led on, one thing led on to another. And then he read, wrote this book, God Delusion, which came rather well known. In, he published, that was published in 2006. Uh, and so that really got the debate going very much in the science-religion debate. In some ways, he was a great gift to us when we started up the Faraday Institute because mm. it, we didn't know really that he was going to publish his book, God Delusion, but it so happened it came out on the, the same year that we started up the Faraday Institute. Mm. And that led to a huge amount of interest. And so we had floods of people coming along to lectures and, and seminars and courses. And we thought, wow, why is that? And we discovered really we can thank Richard Dawkins, you know, for stirring up a discussion, you know, yeah, between yeah. science and religion. But unfortunately, he tends to see science and religion as two kind of opposing explanations for the world. Mm. And so everything yeah. is viewed in terms of conflict. It's a bit puzzling, really. And it's a bit of a still a puzzle to me, you know, why he's so excited about it, really, because a lot of atheist friends I have, you know, they don't get so excited about it. They they're just atheists. <laughs> they don't. They yeah. don't have to, you know, start campaigning about it. Because why would you want to do that? You know, it doesn't seem much mm -hmm. point. But clearly, for Dawkins, that was not the case. And I think, actually, Alice McGrath, in the introduction to this particular book we're discussing, has uh, summarized very nicely the roots of this so-called new atheism in 9/11 and the whole sort of political reactions that came out of that, the cultural reactions and so forth. So that's sort of the introduction to the book. Yeah. Mm. Fabulous. And a similar arguments attached to Hitchens? Yeah, Hitchens is a very different kind of character to mm. Dawkins, actually. Um, late Dickens, he died back in 2011. Uh, he was born in Britain, went to live in America, writer and a journalist, wrote loads of books. Um, very, he loved being controversial. He was a bit of a media person who liked getting media attention. Uh, got very excited on the media and wonderfully rude <laughs> and therefore attracted more attention. Yeah. He, he just loved that sort of conflict kind of idea. And funny enough, I was thinking about him this morning as I cycled here because his uh, he went to the Leeds School, which is a private public school here yeah. in Cambridge, rather expensive one. And his brother Peter went there as well. His brother was a journalist, is a journalist still, and he uh, became a Christian actually, in later life. Mm. And I just remember Peter saying in one of his accounts how he was a keen atheist in his teenage years when he was at Lee's school. So they decided to go out into the playing fields and try and burn a Bible. Mm. Uh -huh. And he discovered it's really hard to burn a Bible. They don't burn very well. That's <laughs> <laughs> just because the pages are really dense. The densely pages packed. are really dense and it's really thick. <laughs> and so he has this hilarious kind of account and they burn a Bible. Uh, but anyway, I was thinking of that because I cycled past the field where he did it this morning, just a few ah. minutes ago, so it's sort of fresh in my mind. Yeah. But anyway, Peter and um, his brother Christopher, older brother Christopher, used to have discussions and debates together. Uh, but Christopher Hitchens wrote this book called God is Not Great, Religion Poisons Everything, yeah. which sort of tells you where he was coming from. And so he contributed in his own particular way to the so-called New Atheist movement. Yeah. So, I mean... It doesn't sound like for you, you're kind of attacking them in any way. You sound quite respectful of them, but I suppose the book could be perceived as an attack on Dawkins and Hitchens' ideas. How does it all fit together for you? Mm. Well, when we started out on getting these 12 authors to write their accounts, you know, one of the first things we said to them was, look, we have no desire to attack Richard Dawkins as a person. This is not what this is about. Okay, we want you to tell your own story. We want you to stick to the intellectual arguments more that you yeah. find were not very convincing, really, in the sort of Dawkins-Hitchens type of look way of looking at things. And that's what they've done, actually. In fact, several of our authors um, thank Dawkins personally for being the means <laughs> whereby they came to faith. Now, I'm not sure that he will be happy about that, to be honest. <laughs> sure. But on the other hand, I don't think any of our authors feel any personal animosity of any kind. Uh, no. Neither do I. You know, I just think, you know, it's... 
well, good for him to stir up a discussion. Yeah. And isn't it good we're having it? Um, and in a way, I always think if the church hadn't had Richard Dawkins at the first part of the 21st century, they, they, they would have needed to invent somebody like him, you know, just to, <laughs> right. to get the discussion going because he's been such a gift to the church mm. in that way, I think. So that's the way I think about it myself. I have to say, I, I think originally I saw him as a very angry person, but more recently when I've seen interviews, he seems to have mellowed quite a bit, doesn't he? Have you, do you get that impression? Well, he had a stroke a couple of years ago, right? Um, and he's recovered apparently, I think, quite well. And but I know, and he's said this himself. His doctors told him to calm down a bit. Ah, well, there you from, go. <laughs> you know, which is, you know, and also I think he's realised that being very angry about things doesn't really help your argument. And interestingly, when you read, when you get to read some of these stories when they come out, it was the sort of anger. And the same with Christopher Hitchens, who got very angry about things. And I think some of the these atheists um, who are now Christians who wrote these stories or their accounts, they just felt, you know, what, what's what's the point about being angry about this? There's nothing to be angry about. You can have an argument, you know, you can have a rational argument. Yeah. And so some of them had read, you know, Dawkins' biology books, as I had myself, and they thought, they're so good, they're rational, you know, they're very nicely presented, well-written, well-illustrated. Then you get to the God delusion, and suddenly it's a very different kind of book, and it's an angry book. Sure, yeah. Uh, and you go, what's going on here? You know, there's something funny. I don't fully, and I still don't fully understand. You know why he would get so angry. I mean, some books of atheists or accounts from atheists you read, and they got beaten by a nun at the age of ten, sure. and yeah. you know went to a school where they got abused, or some th terrible thing happened. You can sort of really understand, you yeah, know, yeah. why they might get really upset against God for these terrible things that mm. have happened in their lives. It's not the case with Richard Dawkins. I mean, he's, he's happy to call himself a cultural Christian. Um, yeah. He went to you know he went to a school out in Kenya where they sang hymns. Well, later on he went to Andal School here, not far away from Cambridge, actually with Compulsory Chapel, um, a chapel where I've preached in myself, actually. But I asked the one of the teachers, I said, oh, what was it like having Richard Dawkins here? I said, oh, he was fine, you know, but he decided to become an atheist at the age of 15 or 16, and so he wouldn't stand up for hymns in Compulsory Chapel. Right, yeah. I said, oh, what did happen? He said, nobody noticed, he said. <laughs> a bit disappointing as a rebellious teenager, you know. <laughs> If you have a rebellion and nobody notices, it's a bit disappointing. But well, bless him. He, he sort of made up for that in later life, I think. Yes. Quite a bit, yeah. yeah. What about one other criticism that you might get then? Um, the idea that possibly this book has confirmation bias. So we're just looking at the stories of the side that we as Christians like people who have become Christians. Whereas presumably it has worked the other way and he may have won people over, the pair of them may have won people over with their arguments as well for atheism. Mm. Yeah, I actually think it's very likely. I mean, one of my expectations, which may not be fulfilled, is that once this book's come out, uh, then probably another book will come out a year or so later, written by 12 Christians who became atheists as a result of reading Dawkins. <laughs> sure. I can yeah. well imagine, you yeah. know, that would be the sort of rather normal, typical thing to do, wouldn't it? But yeah. anyway, it's quite possible. I, I think the coming back to the language of confirmation bias, it's a funny kind of language in a way, because in a sense... I mean, it depends, you know, it's sort of giving a negative spin to something we do all the time. We do all the time in science. I mean, you know, we look at our data, we have to come up with a story. You can't write an academic paper, not one that will get into a good journal anyway, unless you have a story yeah. to give, to hold all the, bring all these data together to make an account that makes sense, to make it coherent. And so is that confirmation bias? Well, sort of, isn't it? Mm. You know, what you're saying is, I've looked at all the data and I think the best story that will hold all these data together in a coherent way is this particular story. Yeah. And I often think that, by the way, when I use Google Maps, I love Google Maps. Mm. You know, the fact you can just press a button in one second, it will give all that data comes flooding in. Yeah. You know, yeah. isn't it amazing? Yeah, and then it just tells you this is the quickest way to go. And it works. And it is. 99% yeah. of the time it works so well. And there's confirmation bias there, in a sense, because what's it what's it doing? Well, it's bringing all those data together mm. and it's saying, this is the best story yeah. for you. This is your best story. If you go this way and not that way, you will get that quicker. It will be better for you. Mm. Is that confirmation bias? You see, confirmation bias is a slightly negative language for something that's actually quite positive. And, and yeah. well, I think of it in a positive way because you're, you're going well. Let's see how the data fit together to make a coherent story. You're doing what Google Maps does. So I'm, I'm slightly sort of suspicious of the language of confirmation bias, simply because I think 
you know, what are we doing every day in our lives? We're doing this sort of thing, uh, which makes sense for us. We're looking for things that make sense, aren't we? You know, that makes it most coherent. Absolutely. So whether you call it, calling it confirmation bias, I'm not sure that really helps in the discussion. I don't know what difference <laughs> yeah. that makes really. And we do pick out yeah. things that are of interest to us, whether it's like mm. something off a menu yeah. or the TV you want to watch. or So it kind of makes sense. Like you're going to pick out the stories that you're interested in, right? Yeah, and when you go out for a meal... Every time you study the menu, you take a long time about it, but finally you come to your decision, you have confirmation bias. You, know? yeah. Yeah. you have certain taste buds that taste one way and not another way and so forth, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah and there's a general... Um... There's a general idea at the moment that well, we can someone might be able to present an argument without any bias. Yeah, well, all, well, all the best with that, I think. Um, and the idea that one piece of work has to be everything. You know, yeah. can it not just sit within, you know, a wider conversation? And so I think that's quite exciting sometimes, especially when someone comes with a cultural counterpoint, perhaps like this book might do. Um, so, yes, but you just think, well, let's just put it into the wider conversation yeah. which is actually particularly biased another way yeah so you yeah we just have to a bit of wisdom around that i think um but it's definitely something that will be said isn't it you know oh for sure yeah <laughs> you've presented an argument but the idea you're, you're open to this other kind of someone else presenting the other side you know you it's not necessarily your job to do that you're open to the fact that it could happen yeah um very good do you have a favorite story from the book that you could share oh. with us of the 12. Of the 12. Oh, it's so difficult. I actually wrote a couple of notes. To, I mean, I could tell you hundreds. That's the problem. I, I find these stories fascinating. I still do. I've read them hundreds of times. I yeah. mean, exaggerating slightly, but simply because of editing and proofreading and all the rest of it, you know. And they are so different. And that's what's so interesting to me. Mm, they are. Fantastic. I'll tell you a story just before I tell you another story. <laughs> but that <laughs> is story. We... Um, the story is about how we got the book published because we submitted it to a Christian publisher here in this country who I will not name because of what I'm going to say next. They, <laughs> but they turned it down. And yeah. the reason they turned it and we said, why do you turn it down? They, the reason they turned it down, they said, it's too diverse. And we huh. go, oh, really? Right? Well, it's aiming to be diverse. I mean, it's good to be diverse. We, we pick yeah. these stories because they're so diverse. That's yeah. the purpose yeah. of the book. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, that's the reason they gave. So that's how it ended up being... Published by Kregel Publications, which is um, it's a U.S. publisher, Midwest, mm. oh, and wow. uh, not so well known in this country, but they're so far doing a very good job on it. Mm. So the stories are very, very varied, and to be honest, to pick out one or two is is quite difficult. I actually quite like this one. Um, do you mind if I just read you the opening few sentences? Is that okay? Absolutely. I mean, so long as we're all right to do that for copyright, and it's your book, so I'm going to go with yes. Well, you know, it's, <laughs> it, for the listener, if, if now <laughs> follows a long beep, you know what's happened. <laughs> okay. No, it's just a few sentences, but I like the way this tells you one of the stories that we've got in this book. This is by somebody called Nick Berryman, who is now, in fact, uh, he's an elder of a church down in Southampton. Okay. But this is how he starts the book. He said, becoming a Christian was something I never expected. It was a complete surprise. This really was a major U-turn in my life. It surprised all of my friends, my family, and myself. Becoming a Christian was not something I expected, wanted, or even thought was possible. For a significant part of my life, I dismissed religion as incompatible with an intellectual mind. For me, science and religion were in opposition, and I had chosen the side of science. My life as an atheist made sense, and I was happy with it. Mm. Interesting start, isn't it? You know, yeah. somebody who's totally just not interested. And then really, it was reading, partly reading Dawkins that got him interested. Yeah, he just stimulated his intellectual interest, and he got engaged with the arguments. At first, they convinced him about atheism, but then other things happened in his life. And anyway... I won't tell you his whole story, but... Yeah. Got to just, read the book for that. Yeah, you've got to read the book for that. <laughs> but, you know, that's one of them, which I rather liked, actually, because yeah. it's not like somebody was, you know, sort of passionate atheist or kind of really, you know, got stirred up by something in that way, but it's simply carrying on his life and then suddenly, boom, you know, something yeah. happens. It's kind of moved from irrelevant to, okay, yeah. I'm thinking about it now. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. I mean, there's another, if I might just mention another one, which I quite like, is... Uh, from Sarah Irving Stonebreaker, who is a um, historian, she's an academic from Sydney, Australia, and um, from a totally atheist family, liberal academics, father's quite a well-known academic, actually, in Australia. 
came to Cambridge um, as an atheist, no interest in religion at all, quite happy and happy atheist, you know, yeah. nothing, nothing going on in life, as she says, but nice family background. And then she started reading um, those natural philosophers, Christian scientists of the 17th century as part of a job, you know, she was doing a PhD in history and philosophy of science. You read people like Boyle and Hooker, people like that. Oh, discovered they're Christians. What's that about? Yeah. You know, and that sort of stimulated her interest and began to undermine her um, atheism in a little way, not very strongly. Yeah. But she then, she well academically went off to Oxford, got a fellowship there. And then Peter Singer came to Oxford to give a lecture. Peter Singer's Australian. He's an ethicist. Peter Singer has a very logical way of thinking about his ethics. So if you don't believe in God and there's only material things, you know, infanticide is okay. He's famous mm -hmm. for saying that, okay? Yeah. Because if you have a disabled child and you don't really want that disabled child, um, it would be better taking all things into consideration for some people, not for everybody, but for some parents, to dispose of your mm. disabled child in the early days after getting born. Okay, And so that's what he's got rather notorious for. Anyway... Yeah. So Sarah went off to listen to Peter Atkins as one of her sort of heroes, really, and, and suddenly realized that his logic was impeccable mm. because she didn't have any basis for the foundation of her very sort of Christianized liberal values, actually. Mm. And that shook her up a lot. Wow. And then she went off to America. And in fact, it was when she had a faculty position at an American university, she met a Christian, and through that she then became a Christian. So it was a long journey mm. of you know, long journey from atheism to faith, but it happened through certainly being exposed to these various uh, intellectual inputs from various people. Mm. Yeah. Interesting story. That's really interesting. Do you find, Andy, that this kind of, not maybe not on the academic level, but these kind of thought patterns fit in with what you've observed around? Yeah, <clears throat> very much so, especially with what you were saying about beginning to engage in the conversation, um, beginning to consider the conversation either rather than just accepting the cultural scenario so when back when I was a youth pastor I was also working in a, a local school and I was a cover teacher so I could be anything from like year seven basketball one minute to year 11 science which was one that I dreaded because if I got top set they were already brighter than me four years ago so <laughs> I stood no chance now so we were there but just so happened in this top set science about about a quarter of that class had come, came to our youth group so they said, oh, and they started talking about church. It came up, you know, church, faith, religion. And then there was, i never forget, there was a young man who was very, very against God and against church, and aggressively so, to the point where um, some of the Christians were dis discussing stuff, and he was asking and uh, really quite militantly pulling apart arguments and, and, and having his say. My job was, of course, to be neutral. I was just a representative there. Um, but it was really interesting. But I was able to just help him say, well, this this might be what a pastor would say in this situation. Fast forward. If we had one of those available, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I just happened to be there by, you know, by some divine um, structure. But fast forward, and I was working with him last year on a massive Christian, organ uh, Christian uh, festival, and he was in charge of the comms and the design of the whole thing. So... Basically, that began his wrestle, I think that's a fair way to say, his wrestle and engagement with the conversation rather than just accepting, I think it was the first uh, uh, extract you read, just the idea of, um, of, you know, just accepting that it's, you know, it's, it's a position for the unintellectual, you know. Um, and so I remember being in that and being privileged to see that and then being privileged to have him come to our youth group, start to ask questions. Our youth leaders say, well, this is what a Christian might say, or and they might say it this way, and him go on a journey and come to know God in an incredible way. But it all came from engagement. Um, and so whilst, like you say, Dawkins looks like a, an attack, it's actually been a real gift. And so I just, I think from a pastoral sense, because obviously a lot of my, a lot, lot more of my work will be emotional or journey-based, so people perhaps uh, angry at God about something or some tragedies happened or something and but beginning to engage with the questions um I think that's that's the big that's the big thing I see once someone's starting to wrestle and if they get to a point where they've spent ages you know wrestling and they they're, they're at a point of no God or still angry with God or or whatever, then the best thing that could have happened was they've wrestled with it they've worked it through and they've hopefully they've got a a wiser Christian viewpoint in their life and 
I found that a lot of people actually come to peace with God or maybe not with church or whatever, but there's progress. So I think the theme really is engaging and engagement, even if it's an aggressive year 11 kid <laughs> in a science class backed up by three quarters of the class, you know. Yeah. It was an amazing, it was a privilege to be part of it at the time. I was just trying to keep the peace really, but, um, hmm. you know, he really came to faith in a similar way. Great. So this mm. is our takeaway then, like just have conversations. Yeah, I think so. Get involved. Yeah, and I think, you know, those people that, you know, question everything, you know, and then some people in church and other institutions may say, oh, oh, okay, get nervous about that. You know, I'm not going to say that in a negative way, but really, though, engage with everything and ask good questions. And, um, yeah, I remember our first podcast and I was telling a story about our neighbour, one of my neighbours, who who, the reason he's struggling to come to to know God and to be at peace with God is because he was told off in in a Christian school for asking good questions about biblical uh, difficulties, if you like, challenges. Well, how could that be? Don't ask the question, hit round the back of the head and sent to the back of the class, you know. So let's ask, let's engage, ask questions, and that's why we exist. That is sad, though, isn't it? If you can't ask questions in a Christian school, goodness me, that is so sad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I, I always say to people... You know, if you start thinking it's quite dangerous, <laughs> it really is dangerous. You don't know what's going to happen, you know. And that's why, I mean, here in Cambridge, actually, where we hope some of our students are really thinking, you know, but yeah. a lot of a lot of students become Christians here in Cambridge every mm. year, you know, becoming yeah. Christians. And you think, yep, yeah, well, you start thinking it's dangerous. You never know what's Dang- going to happen. You dangerous, know what, but it's a wild ride. Where am I going? It's a wild ride, you know. And yes. So w- yeah. watch out, okay? Yeah, watch out. Amazing. It might well, take you to Beirut. It might. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> or Turkey. Um, or Turkey. Incredible. So incredible. what is next for you, Dennis? Because mm. we are drawing to an end of that, but we'd like to know what what you're up to even with these exciting projects what's next well actually i i I hesitate even to confess this i am writing my memoirs you know but um that's exciting the trouble is i'm doing it slowly the film we're gonna sell the the rights i'm not sure about the film but anyway (laughs) yeah you know trying to make memoirs interesting i i when we left beirut actually a number of people did say why don't you write an account of what you've been through and all that kind of thing yeah and to be honest i was pretty busy at the time trying to (laughs) get our life back together here and back in this country but also, I'd never been kidnapped. And there were loads of books written by people who got kidnapped, yes, actually. Was, yeah. And, of course, that's much more cool, you know. You've been <laughs> and, hell, well, you think of Terry Waite, people like yeah. that, you know, his health as solitary yeah. confinement, much of six years, you know, all that sort of thing. Yeah. You yeah. know, and I was concerned about being kidnapped, obviously, when I was there. It was helpful, I think, being in the American University Hospital helped a bit, you know, because yes. they had a white coat on and yeah. you were there to help people. And, yeah, yeah. you know, I think they thought, well, maybe I'll be under this surgeon's knife one day. <laughs> yeah. I better be a bit careful. I don't know if that thought crossed their mind. But yeah, yeah. anyway, um, so the memoirs, yeah, I didn't want to write them at that time. But now um, it's a little bit different, I have a bit more time. And so that's what I'm doing, yeah. Mm. Well, it's I'm going interested a bit to read it. Yeah. yeah, very much. Absolutely. I'm really interested to read the, the new book as well. Yes. When is that released? Sure. Oh, I which the coming to faith with Dawkins. Yes, yeah. August the twenty eighth is the publication right. date. Sort of way, yeah. But they, the, yeah. I don't know. We're trying to encourage our publishers to bring it out a little bit earlier. But anyway, we have to yes, go according yeah. to their schedule. How, where will we get so, it? I mean, Amazon or. Oh, well, I hope you get it everywhere, Amazon, yeah. whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just hope they're good on distribution and so forth. Um, we're just having quite a discussion about the cover, always a key point, oh, you know. Yes. Um, you want it to look good. But they, they've sent us some, several really nice draft covers and, and um, yeah, I think they've got some good design people there. So uh-huh. we're hopeful that we'll get a good cover. Um, to be good. honest, quite a lot of American covers I don't like at all, but they seem to be <laughs> doing a good job in that so yeah. far. So we'll people see. People are buying yeah. them. Yeah. yeah so and I think brilliant. just as a uh, just as a pastor as well, we're just talking to our church at the moment about um, evangelism, and um, there's been a lot of presence evangelism and and just being there and. and I think a backlash from the kind of Bible bashing sales stuff from perhaps the eighties and nineties. Um, so we're just talking about it and how it how it looks for different people and the broad kind of the broad feast of evangelism. Which so it's been an interesting journey for us as a church. It's good, but even reading something like this book, you know, lets you know that there's that people are coming to faith in all different kinds of ways in all different kinds of fields. It's a broad, it's a broad case, you know, from from meeting someone's basic need and showing them love to engaging in a in a big um you know a big discussion a big scientific debate you know god is meeting people where where they're at 
Yeah. So it brings confidence. It is interesting, I think. And what's interesting also is just thinking of our Egyptian um, contributor is that um, he was raised as a Christian, actually, in Egypt. And his father's a well-known psychiatrist in Egypt. And uh, he decided in his teenage years to become a complete atheist. Wow. Uh, and so and he went around trying to recruit everyone in his Christian youth group yeah. to become atheists. Yeah. Okay. So he was a real yeah. recruiter. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, again, that's an interesting story. But, mm. you know, he, again, he was a real fan of Richard Dawkins and yeah. read his books. And it just shows all around the world, you know, there are people who are influenced by books, mm. but they can work in different ways. You Incredible. never know how they're going to work out. Yeah. Amazing. I look forward to reading them in detail later in the year. And Dennis, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you and very nice to be here. Thanks for joining us. You can get in touch with questions, comments and suggestions on Instagram at nowtheresathought or by email to nowtheresathought at c3gallery.church. They both look exactly like now Teresa Thought, but that's just a happy coincidence. If your name is Teresa and you'd like to help us live up to our Instagram handle, please get in touch for that too. Do also have a look at the Faraday Institute's resources. The link is in the show notes or you can just Google them. We'll be back next month, so follow us on your podcast app to get a notification. And don't forget to tell your friends if you enjoy the podcast. But not if you don't. That's no help. <laughs> <laughs>